0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 85 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending January 19th, 2018. The Is Case Keenum the Man or Is It Tom Brady's Hand Edition? In this episode, Jay Rosen and I, Mr. Monitors, take a look at some of the top compliance stories over the past week. We ask our CCOs at risk based upon an article in the NYU Compliance and Enforcement blog by Court Columbic and Adam Dobrik uh, in a separate article in GIR. We consider the death of the compliance defense amendment to the FCPA uh, from the uh, new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. We take a look at Jacqueline Jager's most excellent issue, excuse me article in Compliance Week entitled How the FCPA Withstands the Test of Time. Jay reports on Teva Pharmaceuticals' resolution of bribery and corruption with Israeli authorities. We take a look at Ben D. Pietro's uh, article about whether AI uh, will have machine executable rules, which appeared in the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Report. We take a shout out to retiring FBI uh, Integrity and Compliance Officer Pat Kelly, based upon Matt Snell, excuse me, Roy Snell's article in the SCCE blog. We explore uh, two articles by Matt Kelly around the salary penalty for misconduct. Uh, that's uh, very interesting that uh, he wrote this week. We take a look at Jonathan Marks' latest article entitled Skepticism, A Weapon to Fight Fraud, which appears in his board and fraud blog. We take a look at my 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, my upcoming Compliance Masterclass, co-sponsored with Markham LLP. Uh, We asked Jay if he's worried about Tom Brady's hand or not. And then finally, we preview the weekend's NFL playoffs. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist. Back for another episode of This Week in FCPA, episode 85 for the week ending January 19th, 2018. The, is Case Keenum the man, or is it Tom Brady's hand edition? As always, I'm joined by Mr. Monitors, Jay Rosen with Affiliated Monitors. Jay, welcome.
1: Hey, Tom. Good to be with you on this Friday.
0: Jay, we have uh, survived Ice-Mageddon in Houston. Uh, we were uh, just decimated with uh, between an eighth and a quarter inch of ice, uh, which shut the city down. But uh, we will rebuild. And uh, we're back up and running here and uh, Podcast Central.
1: Okay. Reminds me of my days growing up in New Hampshire. Where <laughs> exactly. In, and when we would be paralyzed by 8 to 10 feet of snow. But, you know, the paralyzation is the important part.
0: That's right. That's right. Well, Jay, we um, we had, a I thought, a really interesting week with lots of different uh, topics that have been commented upon or written upon. So... Um, Number one on our list today was an interesting article by a fellow named Kurt Golombik from uh, in the New New York University Compliance and Enforcement blog entitled, The Big Chill, Personal Liability and Targeting of Financial Sector Compliance Officers. It was picked up in an article and further explored by Adam Dobrik in uh, the GIR, Global Investigations Report, and what, uh, not Kurt, I'm sorry, court, C-O-U-R-T, um, court, explored was some of the recent cases we've seen from the Securities and Exchange Commission where uh, individual CCOs uh, were uh, uh, given civil liability and and either paid a fine and or agreed not to to work at public companies for a period of years, and that this seemed to cause a great amount of strain, stress, and fear in compliance officers of regulated companies that they were being targeted. Uh, he gave, um, I should say court, I'm not sure if it's a he or she, court gave an explanation of some possible explanations for this enduring perception, and I might even say miss perception from my perspective. But number one, the aggregate impact of recent enforcement actions. We had a couple of FinCEN and FINRA actions where uh, CCOs were named. And of course, we had the Money Graham, uh, Thomas Harding um, uh, enforcement action. The isolation factor where several uh, actions against uh, financial sector compliance officers were brought by the SEC, including uh, the Brown Brothers, Hayter, Raymond James, uh, SFX, and in these cases, the only the compliance officer was individually charged. Uh, certainly, uh, the Yates memo comes into play. Uh, but uh, the I thought the real upshot of both uh, Galambics' article and um, dobrick's article was I don't want to say it's much ado about nothing because anytime CCOs are individually prosecuted, it's something to consider. But it's really in a minuscule number of cases. Uh, In large part, it's been, uh, not in large part, in only part, it's been in regulated industries, which which really have a different uh, uh, set of regs uh, that uh, the government regulators work under and a different standard. Obviously, in the FCPA criminal law side of things, it's an intense standard. So uh, even though there have been some investigative, or excuse me, enforcement actions involving uh, individuals. Uh, I don't find this to be uh, something that indicates the regulators are targeting chief compliance officers. Certainly, uh, Yates' memo through Rod Rosenstein have said uh, uh, consistently that if you violate the law, you will be prosecuted. I don't find any fault in that. And if a CCO is a part of a bribery scre- scheme or a cover-up, I think it would be an appropriate Under certain, under appropriate circumstances, I should say, for uh, the DOJ to go after a CCO. But I don't really see any overall or overarching uh, targeting of CCOs. Certainly the regulators recognize, I think, that CCOs are in their court and their friends. So, uh, what were your thoughts on reading all this? well I've, I've got
1: I think there's something interesting about this last paragraph here in the NYU version and it says one proposal for countering the perception perception of compliance officer targeting is the adoption in the u.s of an accountability regime similar to the senior manager regime, regime SMR in the UK. This compels financial institutions to allocate certain conduct rules and other responsibilities to designated senior management functions. Because these senior management functions include not only senior compliance functions, but a range of other business and control side roles, this shared responsibility would provide greater assurance to compliance officer that their conduct would be assessed not in isolation, but within the context of the broader managerial effort. So do you think that uh, would do much more to kind of um, placate people here, or do you think that's just about kind of shifting the blame because earlier we were saying that, you know, the CCO really, uh, unless it's egregious, would not be individually held accountable. Does this SMR idea hold any weight for you?
0: So it does, but um, let me take it a little bit different direction because I advocate something along those lines for corporate compliance programs, and it's called the Compliance Oversight Committee. It's a committee that sits between the chief compliance officer and the board of directors. It's made up of uh, executive leadership team of senior management of a company. The CCO sits on it. But they sit in a position of oversight over the CCO and the entire compliance function, overseeing any decisions that the CCO has made. Uh, It has a couple of different functions. One is it provides a second set of eyes for any actions By the CCO or the compliance function, but it also diffuses uh, that responsibility to uh, a larger or wider range of senior business uh, leadership so that that uh, not only gives cover to a CCO, but also, like I said, puts that second set of eyes on it. So that type of structure uh, I really are that type of concept I ever advocate being burned into your compliance program structure.
1: Great. So um, next up, we've got something uh, between you and Mike Volkov arguing about whether the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy has ended once and for all the debate about amending the FCPA to add the dreaded compliance defense.
0: Right. So, um, I would uh, talked about this uh, uh, earlier this year. Uh, we saw a couple of people, uh, some some new calls for a compliance defense to be added to the FCPA, but I thought the Department of Justice to, Justice eviscerated uh, any uh, argument for a compliance defense when they announced the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. Uh, I think largely those who've advocated for the compliance defense are trying to weaken the FCPA. Uh, to the point where uh, it's really not effective because if you had the compliance defense that many uh, articulate that it's a blanket defense and that simply by having a paper program in place, uh, they're not responsible, company's not responsible for the actions of its employees or senior executives. Uh, that's clearly antithetical to uh, any type of commitment to uh, fighting uh, the scourge of, of bribery and corruption. But, but what the Department of Justice did I thought very skillfully with the new corporate enforcement policy was they really took the concept that not if you have a a paper program in place but if you actually have operationalized and are doing compliance uh, that they will give meaningful credit to that and that meaningful credit is uh, the presumption that a declination will be issued the uh, uh, with a. Uh, remediation, cooperation, and of course, profit disgorgement. Because companies, even if they have a compliance defense, the the, the people with a compliance defense want to argue that a company should be able to keep the fruits of their ill-gotten gains or monies that were generated to the company from bribery and corruption, not generated in individuals, but generated to the company. And certainly profit disgorgement would be an appropriate remedy as well. So the, uh, the underpinnings of uh, any argument for a compliance offense I think have been been eviscerated. Mike uh, was really much more explicit in his podcast that we'll link to in the show notes, and I laid out my thoughts in uh, a recent article, or this month's column by myself in Compliance Week. So uh, I think um, that debate's over, uh, and uh, kudos to the DOJ for ending it.
1: Great. Uh, so i um- Go ahead. Sorry.
0: Yeah. Next up, uh, my compliance with colleague Jacqueline Jaeger had an article that really interested you. Uh, I was fascinated by its title, which simply was how the FCPA withstands the test of time. What did you think of the article, Jay?
1: Yeah, I I, I think it's really um, amazing that one year later when we were all questioning about whether or not the FCPA was going to be weakened. Um, She really comes out with very positive uh, statements that not only has it withstood the test of time, but we've seen over the last year and over the 40 years growing vigorous and aggressive enforcement. We've seen expanding multi-jurisdictional prosecution, and that was evidenced uh, within the last couple weeks with the $422 422 million dollar combined criminal penalty that Singapore-based Keppel offshore Marine paid and besides that we've seen other joint uh, prosecutions with jurisdictions ranging from uh, you know Brazil to uh, the to Russia and uh, we'll even see another joint one that we're going to talk about a little bit later on uh, with Teva Pharmaceuticals. So we've got that expanding multi-jurisdictional phase, and then we've also got a deeper focus on the compliance program, and this started a couple of years ago when Wei Chen came in. And if you look at the you know recent uh, additions to the U.S. Uh, attorney's uh, ma- Manual, uh, a lot of any type of credit that a company is going to get will be dependent upon how robust a corporate compliance program they have. So uh, I think this is a ringing endorsement for where we're at right now. Anything Uh, strike you?
0: Yeah, well, uh, I guess um, really it was the entire scope of the history of the FCPA and how the Department of Justice has responded to commentary, obviously from people like us, but also from businesses about – uh, providing more information, uh, 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 clarifying, consolidating things, um, pulling back from DP or from monitorships when they weren't working, kind of addressing the issues that uh, happened in the last decade around that uh, when allegations of abuse uh, uh, arose and really listening to um, the compliance community uh, and taking that back, uh, certainly with um, the points you articulated, Jay, which were moving from the pilot program in April of 2016 to the evaluation in 2017, culminating with the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy of November 2017 and evolving their thinking on what constitutes a best practices compliance program. So, um, a really interesting way to, uh, to lay all that out for us. And then, of course, overlaid with uh, what you started with, Jay, which is uh, you know people a year ago were very concerned about the, uh, where enforcement might be going uh, under a Trump administration.
1: So um, as, as hinted now, we have an article um, by Chaim Gelfand, uh who is uh, uh, an attorney in Israel, and this appeared in the FCPA blog. And it says um, the Office of Israel's tax and economic prosecutor announced this past Monday that it has reached a conditional agreement with Teva Pharmaceutical with respect to bribery issues that Teva resolved with U.S. authorities in 2016. Under this agreement, Teva will take responsibility for its actions and pay an administrative fine of approximately $22 million, but no indictment will be filed. And, uh, in respect to this rather small amount, uh, the Israeli prosecutors took into, um, effect the $519 million fine, which were total penalties paid to the DOJ and the SEC. And according to this enforcement action, the company did business in Russia with a repackaging company owned by an official at the Ministry of Health. And that official earned about $65 million. And then in the Ukraine, Teva hired government officials as a consultant and paid $200,000 through monthly fees. Finally, in Mexico, Teva bribed government forces. So this is um, the use of this conditional agreement in Israel. And this type of a case seems to bring Israel in line with other nations who have recently passed legislation to allow the use of DPAs, though there are still significant differences between a conditional agreement and the DPA. Uh, The prosecutor stated several reasons for reaching the seemingly lenient resolution with Teva. Among them, the sizable penalties already paid to the U.S., Teva's cooperation, the remediation undertaken by the company, including strengthening of its compliance program, terminating engagements with relevant partners, and setting up global management structure, and the prosecution taking into account Teva's recent financial hardship. So, um, you know, this is, I guess, the second settlement with the Israeli government of uh, an FCPA matter, and it's good to see that they are falling in line with the rest of, of global
0: prosecutors. And I guess, Jay, from my perspective, I'll only add that uh, once again we see evidence uh, of the true internationalization of not only uh, anti-corruption, anti-bribery investigations, but here enforcement. And uh, $22 million is is certainly far below the fine and penalty TAVA paid in the United States. Nevertheless, it's a uh, n- uh, fair amount of money um, uh, to talk about. And so now we have TAVA's total fine and penalty Um I guess that's at uh, 541 million. If I know, uh, yeah, 541 million doesn't move it up in the top 10 list, but it's still uh, something to, uh, to take note of. So uh, kudos uh, to the Israeli prosecutors uh, for closing this out. Kudos to Teva for uh, resolving it. And once again, uh, clearly demonstrating the um, internationalization of both anti corruption enforcement, excuse me, investigations, but enforcement as well.
1: So what's uh, Ben Pietro thinking about at the Wall Street Journal?
0: So, um, you know, the guys at the journal, they they are reporters, and they report. And every once in a while, they get to write things that are closer to commentary. And um, I thought this one was a really a must-read piece from Ben. Um, it's entitled Compliance in the Future, Machine Ex- Executable Rules. And he talked about... Uh, in a not too distant future where regulations are automatically incorporated into a company's policies, which will allow businesses to more quickly and accurately conform to regulatory changes, uh, even more uh, uh, or letting them being deployed by the the humans who still work in compliance, but also giving regulators immediate visibility into companies' compliance efforts. Now, this is... Um, uh, sir, uh, currently focused on um, regulated industries, what we talked about a little bit earlier, including obviously uh, financial institutions, insurance companies, and banks, um, but uh, they lead a technology effort in compliance uh, largely around money laundering efforts that is bleeding into other forms of uh, compliance outside of uh, AML and then into non-financial uh, institutions, i.e. Uh, every other type of corporation uh, across the globe. So uh, I found it really interesting and that we, if we have AI executable rules coming in, uh, that if you couple that with blockchain, uh, we may be moving towards a much more technologically savvy requirement for compliance officers to incorporate this. But uh, where I see it, Jay, is making uh, corporations more efficient, through uh, greater use of technology uh, with human oversight and really, at the end of the day, more profitable.
1: So I had a vision of um, Hal 9000 uh, just coming on and speaking to his CCO and saying, um, Dave, your compliance program is lacking.
0: And I, you know, I had a vision of of, um, the AI dreaming of electric sheep. (laughs) <laughs> um at night so uh you know it probably speaks to the difference in uh, somebody who went to Wharton and somebody who went to UT
1: yeah all right so um now let's switch over to uh Roy Snell over at uh, corporatecompliance.org known to us as the SCCE Society for Corporate Compliance and Ethics and um Roy shared some some thoughts uh, that he uh, is sending towards Pat Kelly, who is retiring from the FBI. He's been the FBI's integrity and compliance officer, and um, there's been a very interesting relationship between the Bureau and, and between um, SCCE, and when the Bureau was looking to institutionalize their compliance plan about ten years ago, they reached out to Roy and the SCCE to get uh, feedback. And that started the uh, germination of a program where every year the SCCE has been able to bring 50 uh, compliance folks. Over to a program with the FBI to actually go to Quantico to see how they train, to learn the tools they use. And um, I know it's been one of the most exciting things I've done through SCCE, and I believe you've done the training too. So um, this is really uh, somebody who decided to go out on a limb and, and bring ethics and compliance within the government. And there have been folks who have left Pat's team and gone on to other government uh, institutions and they've paid it forward. And so this is just um, some real nice uh, thoughts by Roy and recognizing somebody within the government who has really become uh, a collaborator and a friend to uh, ethics and compliance folks.
0: You know, I would uh, certainly second uh, what you said, Jay. I would certainly second uh, Roy's letter I was very thankful that he posted it. Uh, if you haven't met Pat Kelly, he has attended, uh, I think, uh, the last several SCCE, CEI national conferences. He's been uh, very supportive of compliance officers. You mentioned the uh, FBI Academy. It's a great event. Um, I would just put in a plug for it. If you're an SCCE member, uh, the Academy um, candidates, are uh, it's, a, it's open uh, right now until the end of the month to apply. Um, I have 50 slots and 500 people apply, so uh, uh, one in 10. But it's a it's a great, uh, as you said, Jay, a great uh, learning experience. And um, Pat has really led the effort. He's led the effort both within the FBI to take a look at uh, compliance and ethics from their perspective as the nation's. Uh, leading law enforcement investigators, uh, and also working with people like uh, you and I in the civilian sector. So a great legacy from Pat, a great letter by Roy, and uh, kudos to both.
1: Uh, Now it's time for a little radical compliance, and um, I think you and Matt got into some interesting stuff down in the weeds on your podcast, and Matt decided to take a look at the uh, salary penalty for misconduct. What, what's he thinking about?
0: Yeah, so this was a really interesting article by a couple of uh, business professors from the or professors from the Harvard Business School, uh, uh, George Seraphim and Mr. I think William Grossling, but I may have his first name wrong. Nevertheless, um, they took a look at uh, salaries for senior executives from companies that had had to go through restatements. And they found that on average, there was a 4% drop or less salary for an executive who went from a company that had had to make a restatement to another company. And uh, not that a 4% drop is really that dramatic, but the way Matt laid it out, if you look at a 15-year career, it compounds because, Jay, if I'm making 4% less than you now, I'm going to continue to make 4% less than you for over the life of the time I'm with that corporation so that there really is a penalty for misconduct that had not been thought through. And where Matt and I explored it, uh, was in the, um, compliance field, by uh, companies that had uh, gone through a, a major compliance incident or any other type of corporate cultural scandal where they were put on the front page and, you know, you can name the company there, um, And what that effect is going to be on managers who move. So um, the example Matt gave was if you're an engineer at Uber, are you going to be asked about uh, sexual harassment? Um, You know, it's certainly a fair question. And the way I posed it to Matt was if I'm a prospective employer or you're a prospective employee and I'm an employer, I've got to ask that question. And I've got to do due diligence And that due diligence may cost more, it may take more time, it may be negatively impact you not because of any prohibited reason of protected category, but simply because, you know, I don't want to go through the hassle of having to deal with somebody like that. Now, in, uh, you know, I think we've both been in industries that have had these kinds of scandals, but in Houston, uh, the scandal that continues to resonate today, it was and is Enron. And I can remember uh, friends of mine who wore at Enron had great paying jobs. And uh, first of all, they weren't moving because they wanted to. They were moving because they had to when Enron imploded. So there's point number one, that if a scandal's bad enough, you could literally lose your job. We had no control over it. But number two was they had to take anything they could. So um, uh, this uh, I thought was a really interesting uh, idea to consider. And, Matt really articulated it uh, as a way for compliance professionals to talk to senior execs about why culture mattered and, more importantly, it mattered not to have financial scandals such as require restatement, not to have a, 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 a Uber, a Wells Fargo, a Volkswagen, a so-encompassing scandal that the entire company is tainted. And it certainly put, I thought, more... Um, arrows in the compliance officer's quiver to talk to senior management about not only the role of compliance, but what compliance meant for them individually.
1: Yeah, I think um, what I thought was interesting, uh, there's a quote in the second piece, which uh, we're linking to the show notes called More Thoughts on the Misconduct Penalty, and um, Scott Moritz shared. That uh, on LinkedIn, he wrote that he knows a number of friends who have gone to work for companies to help turn around after a scandal and then spend the rest of their careers explaining that they were not part of the problem anyway. So it's it's almost like that that reputational risk that, uh, you know, you're if you're going to work at VW now, there's still that potential that there could be a stigma attached to you next time you try to get your next job. So you've got that perception coming in and then you face that uh, possibility of being paid less for the job just because where you have worked and you don't even get any credit for coming in and helping the company remediate. Uh,
0: right. And uh, just a, a very different uh, approach to things that probably most of us hadn't thought through. Um Next, uh, Jonathan Marks continues his uh, fairly impressive run of blog posts, Jay, and he wrote, uh, he's writing in his board and fraud blog, but he, uh, of course, writes from the internal auditor perspective. And he had, I thought, a really interesting article on the need for skepticism and reminding um, not only auditors to be skeptical, but I thought really speaking to the entire compliance profession. The um, you know I channel my inner Ronnie Reagan a lot. <clears throat> uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's not Nancy Reagan. Just say no. It's Ronnie Reagan. And uh, trust
1: but verify.
0: Trust but verify, and that's a byword that every compliance professional, or by phrase, every compliance professional must inculcate into your repertoire of compliance phrases. So. Um, Uh, As I said, Jonathan, obviously coming from the uh, auditing perspective, but it's equally important that the compliance professional uh, uh, adopt that that type of uh, not only rigorous, but routine skepticism.
1: So he's taken uh, trust, but verify, and his suggestions from a, a fraud deterrence perspective would be, quote, trust is professional hazard.
0: Indeed, indeed. So, Jay, I have a couple of uh, things that are coming up. Um, I'm in the right in the middle of or I'm on day 19, actually, of 31 days to a more effective compliance program. It's been a uh, really good uh, way to wrap up my 12-month series. And um, if you are interested in how to create a best practice compliance program based upon the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program as supplemented by the information in the evaluation of corporate compliance program and the new DOJ FCPA Enforcement, Uh, this is the month for you, so I hope you'll check it out. It's available on uh, the FCPA Compliance Report, iTunes, Libsyn, YouTube, and JD Supra. Jonathan Marks and I are um, putting on a Compliance Masterclass. We'll be sponsored by Markham LLP, where Jonathan's a partner. It will be in Miami on uh, February 11th and 12th. Uh, Actually, I think it's uh, now that I say that. 12th and 13th. That's uh, Monday and Tuesday in Markham's office in Miami. For more information or uh, the agenda, check out uh, my website, the FCPA Compliance Report. Um, and now to get to uh, what seems to be on your mind, Jay, which is uh, Tom Brady's hand. Now, this is not, a, I think, a concern about the size of his hands, although you know perhaps that works into it as well. But uh, why are you so worried about Tom Brady's hand right now?
1: Well, um, a couple months ago, the Patriots traded their uh, uh, superstar uh, backup quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo, and sent him to, at the time, the lowly San Francisco 49ers, and then he happened to lead them on a five-game winning streak. And now, uh, should Tom Brady not be able to go on uh, Sunday, or should he have limited capabilities, Uh, the backup quarterback duties would fall to a former Houston Texan who was a a former uh, Patriot. And uh, why am I blanking on his name? Brian Hoyer. uh, Brian Hoyer, who went to Michigan State, I believe, one of your alma maters. So uh, you seem to think it's much ado about nothing, but I think, uh, I don't know whether it's a mea culpa that's uh, laid out ahead of time and it portends uh, a bad result for the Patriots. But I guess at the end of the day, I'm always a next man up kind of guy.
0: Well, I think you're channeling your pre 2005, uh, Red Sox persona too far that, uh, yeah, you guys were losers for a long time, but that doesn't mean you're losers now, certainly after the past 10 years. And, you know, he does it Tom, mean
1: we're cheaters though.
0: It, you're Tom F and Brady. That's who you are. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, you know, as with the uh, last SI story about the dysfunction coming out of uh, the uh, Patriot camp, uh, it turns out, you know, that was probably a planted story. Uh, this is probably a planted story. Uh, the the uh, actual, actual master of mind games, Bill Belichick, probably planted the whole thing. He held Tom Brady out of practice, had him wear a red glove all to get – uh, the lowly Jacksonville Jaguars uh, all fired up about Mr. Brady's hand. Uh, my prediction, Jay, is that come Sunday, Tom Brady will be starting for the new England Patriots. Um, all
1: right. And what about Jonathan Marks's Philadelphia Eagles?
0: Well, you know, let's, uh, let's just move directly on to, uh, to that where um, we preview the, um, the playoffs. So, uh, I actually I pulled up the line. So um, before we uh, get to the Eagles, it uh, looks like the um, Patriots are seven-and-a-half-point favorites. That's actually Probably down. It was at nine, right? It was at nine. Uh, th- so I don't know if that means the smart money's coming in for Jacksonville or not. Uh, I think um, – Or, you know, maybe Tom Brady is, you know, worth a point and a half on his own. I would have said he's worth more. But, uh, you know, maybe Brian Hoyer's ready to go. But that's the line. Uh, I'm certainly uh, pulling for the Patriots. Um, Jacksonville, I think we do have to acknowledge, does have a very good defensive front. And front fours have given the Patriots trouble in the past. Um, But uh, the Patriots are five-time Super Bowl attendees. Ah, uh, they're going for their uh, no seven time Super Bowl attendees, five time winners, and going for number six. So uh, I'm gonna throw uh, throw my my uh, support behind the Patriots this weekend. Uh, can I can I assume you're making the same uh, move?
1: I can caveated by one former member of Big Blue, Tom Coughlin, who has come to the Jaguars this year. And uh, if we look at those two Super Bowl losses, they were both to New York Giant teams that had a formidable front four and put pressure on Brady. So I, I think that could be the, uh, the potential downside, but I will support my pats and continue to grow my playoff beard.
0: So um, good to know you're not superstitious. Um, nevertheless, uh, game number two on Sunday, Minnesota at Philly. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, Case Keenan, uh, the uh, heart and soul of the uh, fighting Houston Cougars for four years, uh, cut twice by the, uh, not only the Houston Texans but by the L.A. Rams, um, uh, is featured in a game by uh, actually it's the first time we've ever had one coach cut two quarterbacks from one team and they face off against each other in the Super Bowl, the next. excuse me, in the NFC Championship the next year. Nick Foles and Case Keenum were both cut by Jeff Fisher uh, when he was still running the Rams. So um, kudos to Jeff Fisher and his ability to uh, evaluate quarterbacks. <laughs> we have a pretty st- a pretty steady line. Uh, it's opened at three and a half, and it's down to three. That's a Philly given three at home. Um, typically in an NFL game, a home team, uh, they get three points for playing at home. So, I think that means the uh, odd makers, odds makers, think uh, these teams are pretty even. Um, uh, Case, Keen- <clears throat> Case Keenan, I thought, proved his worth last week. He can play with the big boys, uh, he can play under pressure. Um, took uh, Minnesota back twice after uh, New Orleans answered. So, um, I'm kind of torn here, Jay. Uh, I like uh, pulling for the former Houstonian or Houston Cougar case Keenan. Um, but I'm really leaning towards the Eagles at home.
1: I think, uh, you know, there always could be some weather aspects, uh, Minnesota, although they play in the frozen Thunderland they're an inside dome team. So dome teams do not always do so well, uh, when they're playing outside. So that being said, um, i I think it's a pick 'em. i think it's pretty close and i think uh it's going to come down to uh who's got the ball last and uh kind of like last week in keenan that was uh an incredible throw and then and an incredible whiff on the defender who seemed to be right there and all they needed to do was stop that guy in bounds and the game was over so uh I would think we have two uh, exciting games uh, t- on hand for Sunday and I'm looking forward to a little bit more football.
0: Well, I am as well. So Jay, uh, you want to take us home?
1: Yeah. One thing that we forgot to mention, Tom, um, n- on the 22nd, which is, I believe next Monday, you're going to have uh, a SCCE webinar and it's going to be you and Lewis Sapperman, who's uh the VP and Associate General Counsel and CCEO at Dunn and Bradstreet. And you're going to be talking about 360 degrees of compliance communication. So that is Monday, January 22nd, 12 p.m. Central Time. It goes on for 90 minutes and you can get 1.2 CCBs and CEUS. So uh, anything else to say about that one, Tom?
0: So uh, Louis Sapperman is one of the top CCOs around. He's a dynamic speaker. He really has invested in and can articulate why a 360-degree approach to compliance communication is absolutely critical. He uh, lives it, breathes it, walks it, as does the senior leadership team at Dun & Bradstreet. So um, if you're a CCO, if you're a compliance professional, if you're a compliance practitioner or you're a communications expert or want to learn how to be one, you should listen to this and listen to what Lewis does. I'm going to lay down some theoretical frameworks and Lewis is going to tell you how you did it in practice.
1: Great, thanks for that. So, on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for spending this week in FCPA with us, episode 85, either the Case Keenum or the Tom Brady's Hand edition. So uh, we look forward to speaking to you next week, and not only will we take a look at who will be meeting in the Super Bowl, but we'll bring you all the news that we found in the last week about ethics, compliance, and anti-corruption. Thanks so much for listening, and enjoy the football games.
0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the only weekly FCPA compliance and ethics wrap-up. Also, if you have any questions, you can email me at, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. Thanks again for listening. I hope you'll join us again next week where we'll take up next week's top compliance and ethics stories. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit
1: c-suiteradio.com.